Morning, everyone, and welcome to the uh, 2014 Retirement Matters Conference. Um, thanks very much to the RMC for the program and the agenda today. Um, hopefully, you've all figured out how to turn off your cell phones and where the amenities are. We're facing a very interesting time in our country in terms of changes to the pension fund system, and so the theme of today is really a bit of a dipstick in terms of where we are at the moment, and then a reasonably long session um, to just sort of give us a view in terms of where we might be in the future. And I think from the RMC's perspective, they'd really appreciate your feedback because it's very important that as a profession, we have a say in terms of where the industry is going. And so we have the opportunity to sort of hear what the Deputy Registrar of Pension Funds and the Pension Funds Adjudicator have happened to think about us, and perhaps we can reflect in terms of where we would like to go. But just to start off and understand everyone in the audience, and as usual we have um, our little voting buttons in front of you, so hopefully you can find those. Um, please don't take them home, there's not much that you can do with them when they're at home, and I can assure you they're not a great kid's toy. Um, but let's start off with the first question, just to sort of warm you up and get a sense of who's in the audience. So um, if we can throw up the first question, you work in which place? Joburg, Pretoria, Cape Town, Durban, or other? We thought 10 seconds was enough time for you to figure this all out. So press the number and then press OK. Okay. <laughs> the downside is I have no idea what you're laughing at because I can hardly see that. <laughs> but it pretty much looks as though there's a fair spread. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> The downside of dealing with actuaries is uh, hopefully things need to sum to 100. So <laughs> we'll try and figure that one out and show you the answers later. All right. Who is in the audience today? Clearly you have a whole bunch of people who can count. Um, all the presentations will be on the website after the, the conference. Are we ready for the next one or are we still fixing it? Okay, so the next question is, who's in the audience today? Are you evaluator? Do you provide advice to the pension funds industry? Do you provide some sort of product to the pension funds industry? Are you a trustee or a principal officer? Or have you been practicing talking to your own shoes to fit in with the rest of the audience today? Okay, so if we can start voting. Okay, is that it? All right, we better, we'll, we'll have to figure out the categorizations a little better given that everybody thinks that they're other. Um, I'm going to ask the next set of questions now at the start and then again after we've had feedback from our regulators because I think it would be quite interesting to see if any of us are going to change our minds. But if you were doing a, an appraisal of the pension fund system, what score would you give us? An excellent, a good an average, a poor, or a disastrous? That looks suspiciously like a normal curve. 
<laughs> then how would you rate our profession's involvement in the pension fund system? Again, off the same basis, excellent, good, average, poor and disastrous. Well, the good news is we back ourselves. <laughs> uh, hopefully we can still back ourselves after the presentations. And then the final one in terms of what it is that we can do to improve the industry uh, what really should we be focusing on? Should we be focusing on risk-benefit design? Should we be improving um, investment portfolio construction? Should we be getting better at communicating um, our very difficult concepts to members? Should we be enforcing preservation, or should we be getting annuitization right? Okay, so again, we're backing ourselves in terms of what we've done with the investments and the risk side, and it's everybody else's fault. I like it. <laughs> now, as good statisticians, you all know that you can't screw up my sample by leaving early and not participating in the next round. So please do stay for the whole day and make sure that you can collect your CPD. Coming to the first item on the agenda... Um, unfortunately, um, Rosemary has a bit of a logistical issue, and so we're switching her around with Lizzie. So the uh, treat customers fairly um, item is going to be sort of delivered now. Uh, Lizzie is from Alexander Forbes, who one of our sponsors today. Um, she's in the legal department, has been there for a number of years, um, and is going to talk to us in terms of the duties and responsibilities of pension funds in terms of the treating customers fairly legislation. So please welcome Lizzie. She's not one of us. Uh, morning. Like Rowan correctly pointed out, um, can you all hear me in the back? Okay. Uh, I'm not an actuary. Uh, far from it. So I'm going to stick to what I know, which is uh, legal aspects. Uh, although TCF is not uh, entirely, uh, strictly speaking, um, legislative provisions. So what is uh, TCF? It's uh, a concept that was introduced uh, into the UK financial services system around about 2004, and it's aimed at uh, ensuring consumer protection by requiring that uh, financial services organizations um, implement uh, provisions that uh, ensure that they are treating their customers fairly. And the reason why they felt that this was necessary is because they identified that there is a huge gap uh, in knowledge, uh, clear imbalance between consumers of financial services and the providers of those financial services. And uh, as usual, the financial services sector does not couch itself in glory, uh, you talk about uh, overselling, misselling, opaque fees. So there was uh, sufficient motivation uh, for introduction of TCF. Moving on to South Africa, fast forward to 2010, our own FSB adopted 
the UK principles on uh, treating customers fairly. Uh, we have essentially copied lock, stock and barrel what uh, the UK has done. And our own treating customers uh, fairly uh, campaign is based on exactly the same outcomes, six outcomes uh, that were um, introduced by the UK. So what is it? I said earlier that it's not legislation. It's a set of principles. Uh, and from the FSB's um, roadmap document, it essentially says that it's a regulatory approach that seeks to ensure that specific and clearly articulated fairness outcomes for financial service customers are demonstrably delivered by regulated financial institutions. So it's, fairness is not a you know, defined, con definitive uh, concept. What it is and what the FSB has uh, emphasized time and time again is that it's a set of principles that help us guide, guide us in terms of how we treat our customers. Honesty, integrity, um, you know, how transparent are we? How do we honor the undertakings that we have made uh, to our customers when they uh, interact with us, when they buy product from, products from us? So, so, so this is really the essence of uh, treating customers fairly. It's those values that have to be embedded into what an organization does in terms of ensuring that customers who deal with that particular organization um, from the point of contact right uh, to the point of exit are satisfied that they are receiving value for their, uh, for their money, the premiums, the contributions that they have paid, that they're getting the right products, and that those products are actually performing in the manner in which the sales uh, brochure said, the financial advisor who sat in front of them are promised, um, and you know when they do make a claim that the values that are paid to them are exactly what was promised uh, on projection statements, on benefit statements, and so forth and so forth. And the FSB has been at pains to emphasize that it's not just another compliance function. And we'll see a bit more now when we go through the uh, six outcomes. That TCF is not something that should be relegated to the compliance department in an organization. It should really start from the top. And when the FSB issued its uh, feedback to the industry in 2010, 2011 sorry, on TCF, I think a lot of organizations suddenly woke up and uh, realized that uh, TCF was not something that uh, you, know, you could write a value uh, statement or a mission statement, stick it on walls, on all the floors next to the leaves, and uh, just leave it at that. Um, because it envisages a culture change within any organization, right from the top, the CEOs, uh, the members of the board, and uh, right to the bottom, the people who actually uh, talk to clients, people who do the back office operations, everyone within uh, any organization must be involved uh, in TCF. And in implementing TCF, the FSB has also emphasized that there's three main purposes really to TCF. Financial stability, I think following through on the 2008 financial collapse, uh, although South Africa was not directly impacted on, it was still felt that um, you know, there was room and there was a need uh, for TCF and is a part of protecting the um, stability of the financial system. Consumer protection obviously is key. 
the government has, uh, you know, consistently from time to time say that they want to ensure that people who are able to make some form of uh, provision for themselves whilst they are still working are able, after they stop working, to look after themselves. And um, this is also part of consumer protection, that people who have put aside something for themselves are able, at the end of the day, to rely on what it is that they have saved for, that they have worked for, to be able to look after them after they retire. And improved market conduct in general. And like I said earlier, the financial services system has not couched itself in glory. There is a lot of um, you know, angst uh, against uh, the financial services sector about fees, about uh, products that are sold that don't perform the manner in which they uh, were marketed, and just generally high fees and um, you know, bad investment returns and so forth and so forth. I think the list uh, goes on and on and on. So this is against the background against which uh, TCF was introduced uh, by the FSB. January 2014 was the target date, um, and we've gone past January 2014, and I'll talk um, just now about um, where we are at with GCF. So just briefly what South Africa has done, they introduced a discussion paper first in April 2010, and then this was followed by workshops with uh, various industry players uh, to get an understanding of um, you know, how TCF should be implemented in the South African environment. A roadmap document was then uh, issued by the FSB in 2011, which was followed by a self-assessment um, questionnaire that uh, various financial services organizations volunteered, took part in, and thereafter the FSB issued a feedback document uh, to the industry on where TCF was at in South Africa. And then um, what we have now is uh, various legislative provisions that have been incorporated um, via various means and in various laws. This is ongoing. And FSB consumer initiatives as well, promoting TCF, interacting with the industry in terms of implementation of uh, TCF, um, this is ongoing. So I've given the background and uh, set uh, the scene as to why TCF was introduced, what is it? But what are the six uh, TCF outcomes? This is really the cornerstone of uh, TCF, of the TCF campaign. And there are six key outcomes that the F FSB has put out there. The first is that TCF must be central to the corporate culture. And this is not just about mission statements. It's more than that. It's people actively uh, implementing TCF and people being able to demonstrate that TCF is, in fact, part of what they do on a daily basis. And uh, in this regard, the FSB has been at pains to say that they want to see uh, participation at all levels of an organization uh, to ensure that TCF is um, being uh, you know, implemented and uh, being made part of what the organization does. Two is that products and services marketed and sold must meet the needs of customers. Um, this goes to you know, whether or not the products that are out there that any organization is uh, marketing is really understands who are its customers at the end of the day. Uh, what is the profile of that market segment for which the product is meant? Clear communication. Uh, we can debate this for, I think, hours on end. There the, the is, I think, a need, a real need 
to ensure that uh, people who buy products from financial service organizations understand what it is that they're buying, know what exactly their commitments or their obligations are, what kind of uh, payout will they receive uh, at the end of the day. And communication is not just about giving people numbers. It's about, um, you know, the language in which you speak to people. It's, it's about, um, you know, how much information you give. If you give too much uh, information such that people are not really reading or understand what is it that you're putting out there, that's not TCF compliant uh, with respect to outcome three. So it's, 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 it's a very uh, dicey one. How much information is enough? How much information is suitable information? Uh, but what the FSB has emphasized is that they want organizations to put thought into how they communicate to their customers right from the point when a customer makes, makes, makes contact sorry, uh, with an organization. And then advice. Um, there's been a lot of legislation, I think, over the past couple of years in terms of regulating uh, financial advice, how it is given, who gives it, uh, but there still remains a lot that needs to be done in terms of whether or not people are getting the correct advice. I think FACE uh, has gone a long way in terms of ensuring that uh, there is a level of control in terms of what advice is given. TCF Outcome 4 is on point on this. It requires that the advice that is given to consumers is suitable, not relevant. I think what you'll see throughout uh, the TCF campaign is that they don't talk about relevant or appropriate. They use rather the word suitable, that it must be suitable uh, to the person who's receiving the advice or for whom the advice is meant. And there will be various ways in which the FSB will measure this. Outcome number five is that products perform as they are sold and described. Um, I think it's all good and well to get somebody to buy a product, but uh, is this what, uh, at the end of the day, what the uh, person wanted? And this is normally tested when somebody puts in a claim or when somebody leaves a retirement fund and they paid a withdrawal benefit or they paid uh, a retirement benefit. Uh, the benefit that a member gets is that what the member expected uh, to receive is that what the member ought to be receiving. So that's all outcome five. Uh, you should be able, as a financial services firm, uh, be able to measure that, uh, you know, your clients are satisfied that what they get at the end of the day is what they expected or what they reasonably ought to be getting. And then finally, outcome number six is that um, there are no unreasonable barriers to uh, complaints, to uh, people making claims, uh, and, you know, from your consumers generally making contact with your organizations. I think the world over research indicates that uh, one of the worst shortcomings of most organizations, not just financial services, is their after-sell service, that, you know, most people will sell something or they will, you know, render a service but the follow-through after that is not very good. And uh, outcome number six talks to this and requires that all organizations, financial services organizations, ensure that the customers are able to complain, the customers are able to raise any queries that they may have with respect to the uh, organization's service or products. So that's really our six outcomes. And uh, in summary, it talks to the life cycle of uh, a 
client relationship, the life cycle of a product, you know, right from the design of the product to the marketing of the product to somebody sitting in front of uh, a customer and selling the product and the servicing of that uh, particular product, administration, communication, when members receive uh, benefit statements, uh, you know, projected values and so forth, when members put in switch forms, when members put in claim forms, and, um, you know, when investigations are done to pay death benefits and so forth, um, that's all that, um, you know, the 60 CF outcomes are talked to. And obviously, handling of complaints how you talk to your customers or how your customers are able to interact with you when they have a query. So what are the implications for retirement funds? What does TCF apply to retirement funds? A short answer is that yes, it does. A retirement fund is a registered uh, organization. It's a legal entity. It's part of the financial services uh, industry. So TCF definitely does uh, apply to retirement funds. Although the obligation to ensure TCF is on the board, because that's who is entrusted uh, or required to run the fund, there are various service providers that a fund interacts with uh, in terms of it delivering to its uh, members. And we'll talk just now about how all those various service providers, including actuaries who work uh, with the fund, what is their role in ensuring that TCF is uh, implemented uh, by a retirement fund. So TCF, in summary, does apply to all pension funds, pension fund administrators, and all types of face-regulated entities, insurance companies. I haven't mentioned banks, but uh, definitely applies to banks. And I think more and more now when you walk into banks, you see TCF mission statements being put up uh, in the uh, branches, in the offices, and so forth, which clearly indicates that you know a lot of people are coming on board and are doing what is required. For some of us, we work for organizations where there's been a program in place, uh, you know, going back about two years, um, and some of you may be in the audience who might also be involved at your organizations. The amount of work that um, has been done in terms of uh, implementing uh, TCF by various organizations, right from, you know, communicating, training, doing gap analysis, and now, um, you know, gathering the management information and evidence and storing it and reporting on it uh, through various uh, channels within those organizations. It's, it's a lot of work, and I think this is not going to stop. Uh, hopefully, once it's bedded down, um, you know, and we all know what we're supposed to be doing, that uh, it might become less. For retirement funds, TCF requires that trustees go beyond fund roles. It's not just about what you have put in your fund roles. It's about, um, you know, what you are doing uh, in terms of those fund roles to ensure that TCF is uh, delivered to your members. As a starting point, I think in line with outcome one, you have to have a TCF policy. Uh, what is TCF to your organization? What does it mean? Who are the responsible people? What is required of each and every person? Does everyone within that uh, organization understand TCF? For your retirement fund trustees, do all the fund trustees understand what a TCF is? Um, and training should be given uh, to ensure that you're not just talking about it, but people do understand uh, what it is uh, that, what that is expected of them. In some organizations, I know there have been assessments. People have written tests, and there's been uh, a set mark. Uh, for passing, which was quite high in some cases, 
some cases 80%, some cases 70%. Um, you know, people like to write assessments, and not only one assessment, three assessments and some even more. And this was done in an effort to ensure that people, everyone understood um, what TCF is all about and what is expected of them. Second is how do you identify where your gaps are? How do you know that you are meeting all the six outcomes? I mean, the obvious way of doing this is to do a gap analysis. And even going back to the FSB pilot uh, project that they did, they invited various organizations to do a gap analysis of uh, all their functions and within the different uh, departments from outcome one to outcome six to see where, uh, how they are doing and where are the shortcomings, where are the risks of not being able to meet any of the six uh, outcomes. So for funds, it requires that you do a review of all your fund benefits, your processes, your documents. So it's not just your rules. What about all those contracts that you have with your various service providers? Um, you have to look at those. You have to look into the uh, contracts that you have, the limitation of liability clauses that are contained in there. Uh, will those enable you to deliver fair outcomes to your clients? You have to squeeze that, scrutinize that, have the relevant discussions with all your service providers. Your member communication is obviously key. Talks to um, outcome three on communication. How are you communicating to your members? It's a requirement in terms of the Pension Funds Act that you talk to your members. Is it just about putting information on paper? Uh, you know, do your members understand what they are getting? Do your members understand where their gaps are? So all that needs to be reviewed. And, um, you know, any other documentation that a fund has got or any process that a fund undertakes uh, has to be reviewed in light of the six uh, outcomes to ensure that uh, you actually do comply uh, with uh, TCF. We, having done the review, um, what, what then do you need to do? If you've identified gaps, I think uh, for fund members, a big issue is uh, you know, the benefits that are payable to them when they exit the fund. There is a concept in our law which is called uh, reasonable benefit expectations. Uh, if you ask any lawyer, I think they can't give you a definitive definition. But um, what it requires is that where somebody has contributed to a retirement fund, where somebody has received projected values uh, from the trustees of a fund, they've you know, built a certain expectation of what it is that they must get. Uh, and at the end of the day, is that what that member is getting when they exit the fund? You as fund trustees or as uh, service providers to a retirement fund, how do you ensure that members get um, that reasonable benefit or how is that member's reasonable benefit expectation met? So it talks to, do you understand the profile of the fund, who are the members of the fund, are these people who work in a mine, are these people underground, or are these people who sit in an office, is it mostly high earners, or is it low income earners, or is it a combination of low to um, high income earners? How do you put in an investment policy that talks to that uh, profile of fund? Uh, how do you ensure that members are getting a reasonable return on the investment? you must look at things like your net replacement ratios, uh, taking into account the profile of the fund. Uh, what are members 
getting and what should members be getting? Do contributions need to be increased? Is the correct information going back to members, feeding back to members in terms of where the gaps are? Uh, is enough being done to encourage members to actively look at their retirement provision, plug the gaps? What assistance is being given to members? Uh, are you just issuing uh, fund reports on an annual basis? There is a lot of debate in terms of how, how do you actually engage with members in um, you know, meeting your TCF obligations. You need to consider your products. Are the benefits that are offered, the portfolios that are offered on a retirement fund, are this simple enough? Are members able to make the right choices? What is it that must be done or put in place to ensure that members actually understand um, you know, what options they have in terms of investing their uh, contributions and in terms of the risk benefits uh, that they have. Uh, and where members require individualized information, uh, are they getting that kind of assistance? Are the people who are qualified and able to give that kind of assistance to your members? And um, again, having done and said all that, does it mean that uh, fairness for members must be you know, what they want? I think the FSB has emphasized that that's, this is not the case. Uh, an example in point is, you know, should a fund be giving pension increases even where they are not indicated simply because inflation is at a certain level and the fund must give pension increases above inflation? The FSB has said not. Uh, you know, things like affordability and so forth would still be uh, relevant. For a retirement fund, I think a retirement fund would only be required to pay benefits to the extent of what it holds uh, for a, a member. But be, behind that is what the trustees have done to ensure that uh, a suitable benefit and a reasonable benefit is paid to members. And again, I think within retirement funds, especially defined benefit funds, there might be some historic issues where there may be fair outcomes, unfair outcomes, sorry, for members. The FSB acknowledges that uh, this may be the case, especially with some insurance products and uh, some fund policies, pensioner policies, which were purchased by funds um, a few years ago, that this may actually result in unfair outcomes for members. The FSB has said, although we acknowledge that, we want to uh, emphasize that funds must, going forward, ensure that those historic unfair products or complicated products are done away with and going forward, that fair outcomes are achieved for members, that funds must be able to demonstrate that they are actively trying to change these historic structures or historic products where unfair outcomes for members um, may result. So I think this is one aspect where there's going to be application uh, retrospectively. Ordinarily, you know, when new things come, when new laws come, they apply going forward. But uh, with TCF, the FSB has said uh, they will look back to structures that were put in place prior to the um, implementation of uh, TCF. So for retirement funds, you must be satisfied that you, the products that you're offering to your members and the services that your members are getting are designed for your particular member profile. It's, it's not just what is happening, what is trendy in the retirement funds space. It's what is relevant to your particular 
members. You must be able to demonstrate that. So you must be able to show that you've done that research, you understand that profile of fund, and these are the products that you have put in place. You, you, you can't just put a whole host of uh, you know, fund portfolios or investment portfolios and say you know, there is choice. All those choices that you put forward to your members, uh, there must be some thought that has gone into it, and there must be some alignment uh, of the portfolios that are being offered to your particular member profile. And then, you know, finally, you have to look at your service providers because that's who is going to assist you in implementing TCF. You as a fund, you can't work in isolation. You can't implement TCF, and yet you've got contracts in place that are unfair to the fund where you are paying exorbitantly high fees, and yet you're not receiving a commensurate service uh, because that feeds through to uh, the costs and expenses that your members will have to um, bear. So you need to review all um, those uh, service providers and all levels of interaction with your service providers to ensure that uh, there is a TCF compliance. You also need in your contracts um, actually need to record that there will be compliance with TCF and that you will require that your service providers have certain uh, measures in place to ensure uh, compliance with TCF. And the FSB has been at pains to say where your process, where your product, where any aspect of your business has resulted in an unfair outcome for a member, a member has lost money, that that member should be compensated. And in this regard, you know, funds will start have to looking at compensation policies, and this has to be looked at in line with whatever uh, fidelity provision that you may already have in place. So. In summary, your trustees, officers, and employees have to be trained on TCF. You have to uh, incorporate TCF into your trustee assessments. I mean, they're key in ensuring that uh, TCF outcomes are achieved for your members. TCF will be measured via documented evidence. So whatever it is that you do with respect to TCF, you have to document it. This is what they call management information. When the FSB comes knocking on your door, when they want to measure your TCF compliance as a fund, as a service provider, as an actuarial practice, they will want to see the evidence. And uh, that evidence must be readily um, accessible. You have to maintain proper records uh, for, uh, on all your TCF initiatives and implementation. And then going forward, once you have done all the hard work up front, this is an ongoing exercise. You have, on an ongoing basis, have to ensure that you are meeting all your TCF um, outcomes. So TCF essentially must be embedded in your financial product design, the marketing of your financial products, the information that you provide to your consumers, aspects of financial advice, the after-sales support of, to consumers, and uh, your complaints procedures. Communication, that's always a difficult one. How much communication? should you be issuing out there. The FSB said it must be suitable uh, communication. These issues about language, I think we've got like how many, 11 official languages in this country. The Consumer Protection Act uh, attempted to define the parameters you know, for languages, how many languages should be used. I think they even gave up on that. Um, it's, it's difficult. But then again, you have to go back to the profile of, uh, of your retirement fund. You have to understand, I, is it relevant that or suitable that you communicate to them in a local language? Is English the only uh, language that you should be communicating in? 
uh, those are all questions that I think trustees going forward have to uh, grapple with. And whatever decision you arrive at, uh, you must be able to justify that, obviously, uh, in relation to your uh, fund members. For actually sitting in the room, better alignment in valuations, product design and structuring, um, I think there is work there to be done in terms of, uh, you know, is actuarial license uh, as it was before, is it business as usual? Uh, do we continue on the you know, same assumptions, same methodologies that we have been uh, employing uh, before? Um, there is thought that needs to be put into whether or not the assumptions that are being used, the valuation methodologies um, result in fair outcomes uh, for the consumers of their particular uh, service. And more transparency. Um, I think a lot of us don't understand numbers out there, a lot of, and I think I speak on behalf of a lot of other people, uh, and we tend to shy away from um, you know, number issues. We maybe understand words more, but I think there is a growing need that, um, you know, that is broken down somewhat to trustees in particular so that uh, they understand uh, what choices they have to make, what, um, you know, why certain approaches were adopted uh, and why is it relevant or is it relevant or suitable uh, to the particular fund. So in summary for actuaries, you know, you, you are involved in all of the things that are coming up on the screen. Pricing of uh, products, the expenses that are paid in relation to the contributions. Is there a huge imbalance between contributions that members are paying and the expenses that are going off for risk benefits and for fund administration? You understand that better. You've got an overview of the fund. Uh, what advice are you giving to trustees uh, in order to ensure that those pricing structures, those contribution levels are suitable uh, for the members of that particular fund? Product design and development, um, you do the numbers. You, again, must uh, take into account whether you know, fair outcomes are being um, achieved or will be achieved uh, for consumers. I think the FSB has pointed out that for most products, there is a lot of thought and market um, research that is done up front as to you know, what product we want to introduce, what is our target market. But they have not found any significant evidence of testing of that product once it's introduced uh, to ensure that it's actually relevant and it's working for that particular uh, you know, market segment. They want to see more of that being done after sales, you know, going to test whether or not the product is actually performing in the manner in which uh, it was marketed or the, with the intention it, which it was created uh, to start off with. Conversions. Uh, we've seen a lot of complaints that have come up uh, when conversions from DB to DC funds uh, took place. Um, a lot of members were not satisfied that values that were transferred on their behalf with fair benefits. And this is an area I think that um, I understand actuaries have a lot of uh, actuarial license in terms of uh, what numbers they come up with. So it's an area that definitely requires to be looked at uh, in terms of uh, what numbers are being used, what assumptions are being used. Even in the rest of Africa with some of our other offices, we have seen class actions to do with uh, conversions. And these are obviously environments where there's no surplus legislation, where there's no minimum benefits. A lot of members, and I think based on the South African legislation, are actually starting to scrutinize 
and most of them with the help of South African actuaries, the benefits that they get uh, for the conversions from DB to DC uh, funds, and where they feel that they've not been paid the correct benefits, uh, we are seeing a number of uh, class actions being launched uh, in the courts in those various jurisdictions. Valuations for actuaries, you know, the assets, the liabilities of the fund, is the fund able to meet its liabilities? Is it just about the fund meeting its liabilities? In meeting its liabilities, is the fund, uh, you know, meeting TCF uh, outcomes? Where funds are being closed and distributions are being made? Are interests of members being taken into account and uh, members being treated fairly? Payouts, solvency requirements, there's been a lot of uh, thinking that, I mean, you know, some of the reserves that are set up, are they too big? Should more money be going elsewhere? I think at uh, surplus, even now with some of the ongoing surplus schemes, the FSB has been at pains uh, to look at some of the reserves and so forth uh, that we uh, set up. Investments, are the funds investments are suitable to the profile of membership. I've spoken about, you know, it's not just about putting out 20,000 portfolios out there. What kind of portfolios? Who are the uh, investment managers? Uh, and what do the rules of the fund say? What is their members' expectations? Are those investments are relevant and suitable to your members? Revised assumptions. I've seen a lot of work and uh, writings on, you know, they should be uh, revised assumptions. Uh, but, um, and I've looked at some of the case law as well. It says that, uh, you know, any exercise of a trustee's discretion must be within the law. It must be reasonable and it must be justifiable and it must be the, within the confines of uh, constitutional uh, dictates. So there is some guidelines there, but yet again, I still think that, uh, I mean, for actuaries, there may be some considerations in terms of whether or not there is work that needs to be done on some of the uh, methodologies uh, that actuaries um, utilize. Should customers be made aware of all the potential approaches and impact? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, based on some of the cases um, that we have seen that have gone to court where members have complained that the valuation methodology that was used resulted in a lower benefit and an alternative valuation methodology would have resulted in a higher benefit. I think that's really where maybe fairness and what have you comes into play. Because the one methodology that was used was not wrong. It was not incorrect, sorry. Um, but it resulted in a lower benefit. Yet another valuation methodology would have given a higher benefit. And obviously for members, they would have wanted to see the other methodology utilized. So what says you must use this one over the other? You must be able to justify that. And I think in most cases, there is reason and justification for why the one methodology is used um, over the other. What would another actuary say, I think, on peer review, um, if uh, this was challenged in a court of law or if this was taken to the pension funds adjudicator? Giving information on all the different approaches or methodologies that could be used, um, I think it's relevant, but it's how you feed out that kind of information because it's not for everyone. But you must be able to say that your trustees were in a position to understand uh, what was best for the fund and why certain um, approaches were used on that particular fund. 
the role of the actuary is important because, I mean, you, you are the person who's responsible for advising the fund on the risks that the fund faces. And like I said earlier, you've got an overview of the fund and the risks uh, that the fund um, has. So it's, it's, it's quite a key role. And I, I imagine that, I mean, I think this is true that for most funds, uh, trustees place significant reliance on what uh, the actuary will tell them and what the actuary will say. And I think, again, also, on most funds, trustees will actually just take it on face value, whatever the actuary tells them, without even um, you know, scrutinizing that or uh, you know, having that uh, reviewed. So that's quite critical. And as such, I think actuaries need to understand that TCF should be and must be part of what they do, because at the end of the day, um, it's part of what they do that will ensure that members uh, are treated fairly and members get what they should be getting. You need to be monitoring fund risks and advise where there are concerns. Explain to fund the methods and assumptions used uh, for calculations and reporting and uh, account for members' reasonable benefit expectations. I've spoken about this. I think we know, you know, when surplus was out there, there was a lot of reports in the media about 80 billion surplus. So that also, you know, was part of members' expectations, that there's a huge pot out there and we should be getting part of it. And uh, members' expectations on a fund are formulated by a lot of things. What is happening currently? What returns are being earned uh, on the JSE? Um, you know, what the projection uh, values and statements that are receiving are seeing. So that has to be taken into account in ensuring that a reasonable benefit expectations are met. What must be said is that it must be compliant with TCF. So it must be uh, scrutinized uh, in relation to uh, TCF. We now move on to enforcement. How is the FSB going to enforce TCF compliance? I just thought to put things into perspective, you people who deal with numbers, I'll put a few numbers up on the screen. And these are some of the fines that have been um, imposed in the UK by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority. And these are quite significant fines. I think the highest to date has been 100 million, which was imposed on a bank. I think this was on TCF uh, implementation and compliance. Imposition of fines is one of the methods that the FSB has said they will utilize to ensure that uh, firms and organizations in South Africa are implementing TCF and are ensuring fair outcomes for their members. In terms of how they will measure this, they've adopted, they still debate and they're still talking about it. There's no finality, but uh, they, the thinking is along the same model that was implemented in the UK, which is called R2 where they look at all the business activities and the risks of uh, that particular organization, and um, they give scores for each and every section in light with, of uh, the six TCF outcomes. And then there will be an overall score, and I would imagine there will be a spectrum of from zero, maybe to 100, zero to 30, maybe being a complete failure or whatever. Uh, but this is the thinking. There is nothing that has been finalized yet. Uh, in terms of what reporting the FSB will, um, you know, utilize or implement. We were thinking that reporting would start already in 2014, but I think they're not ready yet. But it's, it's definitely coming, and there's a lot of work we know going on behind the scenes in terms of getting firms to start reporting on their TCF compliance. So for the FSB, it will be via a range of visible and credible deterrence to unfair treatment, 
uh, via a combination of market conduct and legislation. There is already some legislation in place uh, that compels um, you know, compliance with uh, TCF. The extreme, obviously, uh, form of enforcement might be shutdown of a business where a license is withdrawn. Um, obviously, that particular uh, fund, if the um, you know, ability to act as trustees is taken away, uh, and if it's a pension fund administration, the Section 13B license, uh, and that would be obviously the extreme. We hope not. Uh, that it won't have to come to that. And the FSB has said that they will first engage with um, executive management in terms of trying to sort out whatever the problems are. It's only in the event when such engagement has completely failed to yield positive results that they will um, you know, resort to extreme measures. So just uh, by way of enforcement, administrative fines and penalties definitely coming. Declaration of business practices is un undesirable. That's already in the Pension Funds Act. Uh, the registrar has got that power to declare certain business practices undesirable. And they can order that the practices or that uh, rules be amended uh, to ensure that uh, there's fair outcomes. Suspension or withdrawal of licenses. Uh, Termination or withdrawal of the approval of certain individuals. I mean, evaluators are appointed in terms of the act, principal officers, trustees. So if those people are not uh, doing what the FSB perceives to be enough for TCF implementation and these unfair outcomes for members, those individuals might be asked by the FSB to stop acting in that capacity. Damages and compensation awards to our members who have been affected by whatever that our organization's shortcoming is. And they may also refer matters to the High Court, and they may also refer matters for criminal prosecution to the National Prosecution uh, Authority, where there's been any contravention of a statutory provision. So in summary, it doesn't mean that you know, we all have to simplify to the extent that we are pushing inferior products out there. Uh, that in itself is not achieving TCF. What comes out, I think what is key, what is important, is that you have to understand the profile of your fund, who are the members of your fund, what is it that, mu that they must have, and what is it that's suitable to them that must be put in place. I think that drives a whole host of the other compliance initiatives that you must put in place. Your products and your services, this is not once off. Once you've put out the product out there, you have to actively review. And I think this is so true of retirement funding. What was relevant maybe 10 years ago it has changed. I think now when people look at net replacement ratios, they look at investment returns, these are not you know, fixed goals. These are things that are changing all the time. And that's, this is what TCF envisages, that there is this continuous assessment and engagement to ensure that um, you, know, you are on the mark you're in touch with what your uh, members' requirements are. It's likely that, uh, you know, where there are failures or where customers perceive that they've not been treated fairly, there may be lawsuits. Um, we haven't seen a lot of uh, class action lawsuits, but I think with all the financial services legislation, th there is a feeling that, you know, we're going to see more and more class action uh, lawsuits uh, from consumers where they actually actively take on uh, the providers of these uh, uh, services and uh, products. And obviously, in light of this, you have to review your fidelity cover and uh, ensure that um, it's uh, relevant and it's, uh, it's at appropriate levels. Although the uh, FSB is still to decide on reporting requirements, and although you know, they have not you know, given, they have not um, 
sounded out at the bell to say TCF is now effective, they are actively, uh, you know, looking at TCF being implemented by organizations already. There's not going to be like a big bang approach, now we implement TCF. The expectation from the FSB is that we should all already be implementing TCF and we should actually be a long way down the road in terms of our TCF implementation initiatives. It's part of our regulation, it's not gonna go away. We, we, we're not gonna, um, you know, there's no change, nothing is gonna change. This is really gonna be part of our landscape. And uh, on a positive note, I think uh, from the UK, a lot of firms have reported that TCF has actually been quite positive uh, to the bottom line numbers. You know, where they've been forced to look at their products, their designs, and uh, you know, all the other um, aspects of their organization in relation to what um, you know, a customer would want to experience, they've actually experienced positive outcomes in terms of their growth numbers. So it means less complaints, hopefully. Um, the adjudicator I see is scheduled to speak later on. She'll talk about uh, the kind of complaints that she deals with. We see them uh, in our department. There's a lot of complaints where members say, I've been contributing for 10, 15 years, and the quantum of the benefit that I got is not commensurate with the number of years. They don't look at the level at which they were contributing. So this is, these are all things, I think, that indicate that uh, you have to look at this and how do you manage uh, those expectations. Is simply sending out a benefit statement enough? Um, maybe not. There may be more that's required. And hopefully it will uh, result um, in a better reputation for the uh, financial services industry. Just to emphasize that TCF, is, it puts the onus on you. You are the one who has to demonstrate that you are implementing TCF and that your customer is satisfied that you are achieving the six outcomes of TCF. It's not just the results of a survey which uh, indicates 90% customer satisfaction. It's more than that. So the onus is on you in terms of uh, implementing and ensuring that TCF happens in your organizations. Are there any questions? Thank you. I'm not letting Lizzie go without a question. <laughs> so, I mean, I think let's just try and make this practical. Um, I, personally, I think it's quite sad that we have to have this legislation in the first place. But what do you think is required of trustees? We're advisors and we're calculators. We're not really decision makers. So if we see a board of trustees doing something that we don't believe is TCF, should we be just minuting that in a meeting? Should we be putting that in an evaluation report, or do you believe that there's a whistleblowing requirement of us as, as evaluators to the FSB? Um, I see the registrar, the deputy registrar is here. Uh, it's definitely more than that. Um, there is now whistleblowing provisions in the Pension Funds Act. So to the extent that as evaluator, you recognize and you identify uh, certain things that would result in an unfair outcome for members. It's not just about minuting it. I think there must be an engagement process, obviously, with your trustees, failing which you actually have to report um, on it. And there is a framework within the Pension Funds Act uh, with regards to how you report, and there is some protection for um, that kind of whistleblowing. 
hopefully after another cup of coffee you'll have warmed up and we'll, we'll fire a lot of questions. Um, very easy to introduce our next speaker. Um, I think that she's very well known to the audience, Rosemary Hunter. Um, she's been appointed by the Minister of Finance as the Deputy Executive Officer of the Financial Services Board, Deputy Registrar of Pension Funds, and the, the Deputy Registrar of Friendly Societies. Um, she's been a part-time lecturer for some, some years at the University of the Witwatersrand, where she got her master's. And she's practiced as an attorney and a law consultant with a number of different firms um, for more years than she'd like to admit, um, but certainly has built up um, a credible amount of experience touching on a vast array of sort of areas that impact on the pension funds environment. Rosemary's going to talk today about the roles played by actuaries in the supervision of retirement funds in South Africa, challenges and opportunities identified by the registrar. And so here I'd like you to think about the sorts of roles you would like us to play in future rather than just the roles that are required of us by law. Thanks. Thank you very much, and thank you, Lizzie. Can I ask you to come and do all my presentations about what the FSB is saying because it's just wonderful to have that uh, reflected so well. Um, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me to this conference. Until recently, I thought that I would uh, just be speaking to the, the 92 odd actuaries, uh, odd actuaries uh, that we recognize as valuators, and they're very special actuaries, um, retirement fund valuators. But it seems to me that retirement fund valuators are becoming as popular as pension lawyers by the number of non-actuaries who come to this conference compared to the non number of non-lawyers who go to the pension lawyers conference. So I'm going to talk to you today as if you're all actuaries. Um, after all, I've known many of you for many years, and you've never hesitated to argue the toss on interpretation of the law. Uh, so <laughs> I'm sure that the non-actuaries here and uh, non-lawyers will feel free to do the same. I asked Christian Alice to tell me a little bit about these 92-odd actuaries we recognize as valuators. And he's told me that um, the average uh, age of this group of actuaries, very special actuaries, is, is 48, which means the average pension fund valuator was born in 1966, when miniskirts were in fashion, um, when uh, England won the world, uh, in, you know, England won the Soccer World Cup, when Lesotho and Botswana were freed from uh, colonialism, uh, uh, became independent from England, and um, Mimi Kutze was awarded the Kamamaras Sangarain, whatever, a highly prestigious award by the Australian government. Well, I don't know if uh, Christian thought he was being funny telling me about uh, suggesting that all these actuaries are old toppies, but I have to say that I was actually born a few years before 1966. So anyway, the, uh, some of my best friends are actuaries, and Christian's one of them, <laughs> including Christian. But I've been worrying a little bit about why I do regard many of you as very good friends and why I've so enjoyed working with you. And it worries me because... I fear that there may be a bias, and you know regulators are not allowed to have any kind of bias uh, towards groups of, of, of people. And so I've been trying to wonder out what it is about actuaries and the role that they play in the work that we do at the FSB in, in pension fund supervision and regulation, and the work that I did previously as, a, as an attorney, um, usually advising pension funds and working with actuaries in that context. And I think what struck me most profoundly since I've joined the FSB um, is how 
how comfortable my, how much maybe more comfortable my actuarial colleagues have been than many others in engaging in debates um, about some of the changes I wanted to introduce into relation to uh, the ways we do things in the retirement fund section of the FSB, um, and who are feel free to, to argue and, and debate with the, me on these things. And I think it might have to do with something to do with the fact that they belong to a profession. And that, I think, is, is extremely important. The members of a profession with a pro professional body that encourages and, and, in fact, requires ongoing education, robust but respectful debate, and compliance with standards of professional conduct. And I've seen ASA taking on actuaries who violated uh, or have been alleged to have violated some of these standards. Um, for my sins, I was actually a member of the ASA disciplinary committee, but fortunately I was never called to actually serve in that capacity. Um, but I've seen ASA seem to be rather quite effective. I haven't seen personally, um, sorry, I suppose I'm supposed to be, I don't know if I'm supposed to be, no, let me leave that one up. I don't know, um, I don't need that. I haven't seen Saika do the same, but no doubt it takes the same kind of action where it sees its own members uh, not complying with its professional standards. And I'm delighted that Batseta is going to be playing this role in relation to um, principal officers who are becoming a profession, who likewise require constant uh, upgrading and updating of, of uh, education, uh, encourage debate, recognize that uh, there are professional standards, but there must be room for professional judgment and room for debate within that. And that is all very healthy, I think. Of course, the Law Society also does this uh, and uh, takes action against members of uh, the attorney's profession. And it seems to be easiest when some of us are caught with the hands in the till with the, with the trust accounts. It's a little harder, it seems, to, to uh, get the Law Society to act when there are concerns about breaches of professional standards of professional conduct of other kinds. Um, and this might have led, there's a fellow in, in uh, the US called Sidney Harris, who suggested that bar, bar associations are notoriously reluctant to disbar their, a member of their, of their organization unless he's murdered a judge downtown at high noon in the presence of the entire committee on ethical practices. And we have had a problem. It does disturb me. We've referred uh, people to the Law Society. Then we've been unhappy about lawyers' uh, uh, professional conduct. And unfortunately, one of them I saw the other day still advising pension funds. I don't know what's been going on. We're extremely disturbed by the role that he plays. But there are sometimes uh, times when uh, me and my colleagues in the actuarial department of the FSB uh, do have concerns about some of the things that actuaries do, the valuators of retirement funds. For example, we find, sometimes find valuators recommending to the boards of retirement funds that where there have been losses suffered as a result of massive maladministration, there have been some shocking administration cases, as you know, uh, that the members' benefits simply be written down uh, to, you know, to the... Uh, in order to, to fit um, the money available. But there is no, um, the extent to which the, the benefits have been written down isn't justified with reference to a legal opinion on prospects of success for recovering some of those losses from parties that might have been responsible for them. So we can't just make an assumption that we can't recover. And I'm afraid there are, there are too many quick assumptions out there about how it's impossible to recover those kinds of losses, so we just simply write down the benefits. And we need you to be on guard on that. And when you do decide to recommend to your clients that they write down the benefits, it has to be justifiable. And you need to show us how you've justified that decision by reference to legal opinion on prospects of success for claims against the, the parties, third parties responsible. Likewise, in some valuation reports, funds uh, provisions for unclaimed benefits are reduced 
um, taking into account prospects of success of ever paying these people. I don't have a problem in principle with that, but again, we need it to be justified. How did you get to the lower number that you think you need to hold set aside to provide for unclaimed benefits because people you can't trace? And I'll talk a little bit about uh, unclaimed benefits a bit more later, um, particularly surplus uh, unclaimed uh, shares of surplus just now. But I do th I'm just trying to emphasize the point. When you submit a valuation report where you've adjusted that provision, it has to be supported with reference to uh, a proper uh, – um, we need to know that the trustees have properly applied their minds, what, uh, what steps they've taken to date to try and trace those people. Uh, don't just say you've advertised in the local newspapers and so on. It's just not going to persuade us. We need to know that uh, retirement funds are being vigorous in trying to find people for whom the benefits uh, were payable. And uh, because we can talk at TCF, <clears throat> but frankly, so much of TCF, TCF is simply fiduciary duties. And if you have failed to fulfill the objects of the fund, which is to pay the benefits that have accrued to people, then, then we have a serious problem. So, we, um, it, of course, we can't expect the impossible, but we need to know how you've justified a reduction in the provision you're holding. In a recent case, um, one, another area of concern, in a recent case, we, we found that a valuator had half... Uh, half completed a valuation report at surplus apportionment date. Unfortunately, we're still dealing with some of those valuation reports now. And then ceased to be the valuator. A new valuator came on board and found that provision had been made for various reserves, including a data error reserve, simply assumed that those were still valid and finalized the valuation report and submitted it to us and did not take into account the fact that many years have passed since the funds have been doing data cleanups and so on, and in fact the provision was way in excess of what was required because the data was so much better, the data as at surplus apportionment date. And the fact that that provision remained meant that the, the amount available for distribution in a surplus apportionment scheme was, was uh, significantly, uh, significantly affected, and that's just not good enough. So we've, we've sent that back. And in another case, my uh, colleagues have told me that the evaluator simply signed off a scheme for the uh, transfer of assets and liabilities from a fund without ensuring that the scheme didn't accurately reflect the fund's financial results. So these cases, in our view, indicate that the evaluators may fail to comply with their professional conduct standards, particularly the, the duty to properly consider the likely, likely implications of your recommendations for all parties that are likely to be materially affected. And uh, you need to also, of course, draw your client's attention to the implications of these assumptions that you're making. Now, while these, these kinds of cases have made us grumpy with the individual actuaries involved, they haven't uh, damaged the respect with which we hold the actuarial profession as a whole. On the contrary, given our limited capacity to properly supervise the 2,500 or so active funds at the moment, let alone the dormant funds that we're still trying to, to close, we've been wondering whether we shouldn't be withdrawing all valuation exemptions. Um, and, requiring, and, and shifting more monitoring and reporting responsibilities onto actuaries, fund valuators. And that's, that, that's the context in which we've been debating this whole question. As we all know, DC funds can suffer losses, whether as a result of poor administration, theft, um, or otherwise. And in most cases, the damage has been done by the time we hear of it, um, even by the time the trustees hear of it. So we've been wondering whether we shouldn't be uh, um, removing valuation exemptions so that we have more regular um, – the valuation reports we get from valuators may be another tool for giving us early warning signals. We certainly need more early warning signals, which is why we have all these whistleblowing responsibilities. Just about everybody now in the, in the retirement funds game has a whistleblowing duty. and must tell us what you think is going on so we can try to intervene as quickly as possible. Um, 
but we're still thinking maybe valuation reports are required there as, uh, even for, for DC funds. But the question, of course, is what is it the valuators can do that others can't do, um, like uh, auditors? People bulk at the, at the cost of having a valuation done of a, on a fund every three years. But I think sometimes we overestimate the, the downside of, of these kind of costs and we don't place sufficient value on the upside, on the value of these, of these regular assessments as risk management tools and early warning indicators. But aren't uh, fund audits sufficiently when, you, uh, when the auditors uh, audit the financial statements? Is that not a sufficient um, tool for, for this kind of early warning? Well, I'm told that, uh, and I'm told by actuaries, that auditors don't always, um, they only do a sample of the data before assessing a view, an opinion on the reliability of the, of the financial statements. And for that purpose, they don't always perform an a, a, a check on those samples by, for example, taking a mem member's fund credit at the start of the period, accumulating it with, with returns on investments and, and uh, costs and so on, and then to see if the result matches the amount reflected as the member's fund credit at the end of the period. Where valuators, on the other hand, have to perform their functions, take into account the whole data set. And valuators tell us that they often detect errors um, in, uh, in the fund credits of members, even though the, the financial statements have been signed off by an auditor. And they tell me that the actuaries have a specialist skill in the relation to the theory of interest, and only some auditors do. Frankly, I wouldn't know. <laughs> but we do need to make a decision on this issue. And Unless I can persuade Dubit Sidi, who's the real registrar of pension funds, to do it for me, I have to come to grips with this issue, and I have to say it's not an easy one. And that's where my concern about am I a bit biased in favor of actuaries comes in. And I'm expressing this all out there, putting it all out there, but I'm really grappling this, with this. Of course, ASA has made some submissions to us on this issue, and we've taken, we take carefully considering them. But I have to say we haven't yet been persuaded. So if any of you want to make submissions, please put them in writing, give us your reasoning, uh, actuaries and non-actuaries, please, we have to come to some sort of decision about valuation exemptions. And if we do grant, uh, if we do withdraw all valuation exemptions, it might be that we have more limited requirements for certain kinds of funds. We need in our regulatory measures to be um, fit for purpose. So funds that are very simple, everybody has the same investment uh, arrangements, there are limited benefit options and so on. It may be that the valuation reports are much simpler, our requirements for those, than, than for more complicated funds. Um, but it is a tough question. And I'd, so I urge you to submit your, your thinking on this. And in fact, on, on any of the regulatory, we've got so many regulatory issues. Issues we have to uh, produce new regulatory instruments of a, a wide variety. Um, and uh, as Lizzie has said, we have to embed TCF into the principles into those new regulatory instruments. And we need as much intellectual property, uh, uh, well, inter intellectual input as we can get, properly reasoned arguments not just uh, angry statements of one kind or another or passionate statements of one kind or another. The more you can submit to us just, uh, well-reasoned arguments, the more we can take, that, uh, take your concerns and, and thoughts into, into account. We are really open for that kind of discussion, and we'd be, we would welcome it. One of the more easy regulatory instruments we're working on right now, of course, is the new notice on... Uh, on the appointment evaluators, taking into account the fact that we now have those powers under, uh, subject to compliance with the Provo uh, Promotion of Administrative Justice Act to require funds to terminate the appointments of evaluators if we think that they are not fit and proper to do the job. Um, and one of the interesting little debates that's come up is because the Act says you've got to be, a, the evaluator must be resident in South Africa, what does that mean? 
we have got uh, at least one actuary arguing that if he comes here every so often from his residence in, in the UK, he's sufficiently re uh, resident in this country to fit the bill to do his job. But we think taking a purposive approach to the interpretation of Section 9A, we think there's a reason why the, the Parliament decided to say you've got to be resident in this country. And among those reasons are that you must belong to the local actuarial society and keep up to date with the developments that, through the, the seminars that are like this that are provided. You need to be in regular contact with your clients and you need to be in regular contact with us. So we're not satisfied that it's, it's okay to keep a flat here but live somewhere else and call yourself resident for the purposes of Section 9A. And so we'll be trying to spell a bit of, a bit of that out in our notice. Um, we don't know what the threshold would be. It might be we think that we should follow the approach that is taken for the, by the tax authorities, but we're still looking into all of that. I'm very glad uh, on the financial soundness of, of rule amendments. I'm glad this is being addressed later uh, by Pierre Ranek and Gerd van der Linde. I'm going to be listening, and again, I would urge them if they've got this in a paper to, to send it to us. It's something that we, issues that we need to take into account when we say that we've seen an evaluator signed off that this uh, rule amendment is financially sound. Um, that we, we can assess whether that evaluator is just signing a piece of paper for the sake of it, keeping the client happy, or um, whether there has been a proper assessment. So I'm going to be very interested to hear what they say this afternoon about that. Let me talk a little bit about embedding TCF into our regulatory instruments. Um, Lizzie's been talking quite a lot and very well this morning about the things that trustees can do to get ready for TCF once it is actually a law. It's not at the moment, but as I've said, I think there are a lot of these TCF principles are really just a way of expressing fiduciary duties anyway. You can't uh, fulfill the objects of a fund, which is your principal uh, fiduciary duty as a board, without communicating properly with the members, without making sure it's possible for them to uh, uh, lodge complaints and have them dealt with properly and so on. But we need to provide guidance, and some of the ways we're going to do that is to build it into our, our requirements uh, for, for example, uh, the licensing of retirement funds through the, the setting standards for the rules that they must incorporate, uh, the, the rules that they must have. So um, we're going through this whole regulatory change of strategy at the FSB, and we're hoping to, we're going to not only be um, looking at new ways of doing regulatory, uh, devising regulatory instruments to incorporate these principles, new ways of doing supervision, but we're also restructuring. So we'll have a single licensing department, and try, we'll be trying to harmonise licensing standards where they can be harmonized. Obviously, retirement funds, some of their licensing standards will be very different to that of an insurance company, but there may be some that are similar, so it is going to take us a bit of time. But we will be looking at uh, what we need to put into standards for the pension fund rules uh, in order to help funds, well, to, to help funds ensure that they comply insofar as that is possible with the, with the TCF outcomes. And in the meantime, um, we want to help trustees uh, to build TCF into their various practices. So, for example, before we prescribe standards for rules, and we'll have to break them down uh, so that we don't have one set of standards for all pension fund rules. There may be a set of standards for beneficiary funds, for commercial kind of or sponsored uh, umbrella funds, for not-for-profit umbrella funds like bargaining council funds, union funds, uh, employer umbrella funds within a, a group of companies and so on. Uh, so there will be different different standards, some will be the same across, but they'll have to be different standards, more fit for purpose for each category of funds. Um, but we thought we would start by helping by, by drafting model rules. And so we are trying to work on that already, model rules for different kinds of funds, 
and then put them out to the industry. People can use them if they like them, but they can tell us also what they think is rubbish and kick their tires, and, and we can all take into account the feedback we get before issuing these. We might, and I'm not saying this is what we're going to do, but we might issue a, a, a prescribed requirement that you must use these rules. If you're this kind of fund, you must use these rules on a comply or explain basis. The dream is, of course, that you'll be, have this online, you'll be able to register your fund online, and when it pops up, you say, I don't like that rule, you put in an explanation, and somebody on the other end hopefully is saying, well, that is, that is sufficient, okay, you don't have to comply with that one, but give us this or that. But, you know, that may be many years ahead. But that's the kind of thing that we're hoping to be able to do, make it easier to, to comply, uh, provide guidance, but uh, get, get your input uh, as we go along that road. I'm not going to go into the details about TCF. I think Lizzie's done an excellent job canvassing the various, the various ways in which we um, will do that. Uh, we, well, the trustees must prepare for it. One of the benefits of the knock-on benefits of trying to do uh, model rules and then ultimately uh, prescribed standards for pension fund rules and possibly prescribed standards for, and this is uh, what I'm discussing already with the people in our phase department, prescribed standards for agreements between providers of financial products and services to funds and possibly model agreements um, because some of the agreements that I've seen coming from asset managers and firms of benefit consultants, actuaries, and everybody, there are, some of them are very horrible, particularly in relation to um, things like uh, limitations of liability, disclosure, reporting, all sorts of things. So let's put out some drafts and model contracts, model rules, put them all out there, and hopefully through, that, through this process, funds and, uh, will start having more standardized rules. Uh, there'll be more standardized agreements. But what standardized rules will be able to do is to promote harmonization and competition because people should be able to compare apples with apples. It's really difficult now with so many different styles of rules and so on to see that actually this fund offered by this provider is very similar to that fund. And so employers and their employees together when they're choosing an umbrella fund, for example, should be able to compare apples with apples and it'll be easier if the rules are the same, um, subject to variations where necessary. So we want to help promote that competition and the harmonization and ultimately consolidation. Now don't get me wrong, I can't, I'm not saying that a small retirement fund with a few members, 200, 500, can't provide good value for money. But there are a lot of funds that, of that size that simply don't have the bargaining power to get decent uh, terms of their agreements with their providers of products and services. And when their funds can't do that, then they can't fill, fulfill their, their, the object of providing best value for money, and so they should be consolidated into, into umbrella funds or something like that. And we need to make sure that the, the umbrella funds are designed in such a way that they're sufficiently responsive and, design, uh, to, and, and uh, able to, to meet the requirements of the different categories of members that might belong to them. I don't think these vast umbrella funds that take everybody um, are going to be okay in the future. It might be that we require that they be either broken into sections or broken into different funds. In so, uh, if that is what it was required for easier communication, greater alignment to the interests of the members with the nature of the fund and so on. But uh, don't get worried. We will be doing, this is going to be a long process and we will be talking with, uh, with you and other stakeholders all the way through. Okay, just a couple of issues. I uh, inevitably will be asked, so I might as well deal with them. Closure of dormant funds. Some of you will have been there at the Pension Lawyers Conference where I announced this legal opinion that we, we received, saying that uh, some of our processes were not always legally correct. We didn't have to go and reopen every case, but if, there was, if we can find that there was indications that somebody was prejudiced, then we might have to look further. 
I'd hoped by now we would have had a, a circular out there, but things have, uh, there are so, many, uh, so much variety of issues and things that have come up, it's become more complicated than, than we all anticipated. Um, but we are consulting, uh, I think it's next week, we're having a meeting with, uh, I think, four or five of the big administrators that between them have 80% of the remaining um, dormant funds on their books, and hopefully after, soon after that, we're hoping we'll be able to issue a circular on the way forward and uh, draft. We were already working on drafts. Uh, terms on which we'd ask courts to appoint curators um, for the current, currently dormant funds that can't close right now because there's nobody who's directing mind and will of that fund to, to get rid of the remaining assets and liabilities before asking us to deregister. Um, council has says that it has to be done by a curator. We want to find ways in which to ask a court to appoint a curator for lots of different funds to keep the costs low, to really just provide some sort of independent supervision of the work that is already being done by the administrators. Um, and that is the way councils told us to go, so we're working on all of those. Finally, if I can just close by mentioning a couple of things to do with unclaimed benefits. I mentioned a bit about how our um, liabilities and uh, you know, issues around providing for unclaimed benefits. One of the most difficult ones at the moment is the um, providing for unclaimed shares of surplus. We have a regulation that says you may not reduce that provision. And while um, there have been a couple of legal opinions saying that that, that regulation is ultra vires, that the minister wasn't entitled to pass it, it's there. And unless the minister withdraws it or somebody takes, the, takes it to court to have it set aside, you'll have to keep complying with it. Now, we're going to be talking to Treasury about that. It might be best to withdraw it and, and replace it with something else or whatever, but um, that is, again, it's part of our long, long to-do list. So we'll, we'll hopefully keep you posted on that. The other question is about the transfers of unclaimed benefits uh, from uh, existing funds. Transfers of unclaimed benefits from funds that are going into liquidation or are liquidated are not a problem because if a fund is going to cease to exist, then there's nothing in law that says you, have to, you can't just force a fund to stay open. And in, in the context of a liquidation, if the rules say you transfer your liabilities for unclaimed benefits to an unclaimed benefit fund, that's fine. It's when the fund is ongoing that it's more difficult. First of all, there's the question about whether the trustees of a fund should be saying, let's get rid of those liabilities. What is it about an unclaimed benefit fund that can, what's going to make it more likely that they can find these people than you can't? And I think this is something that a lot of trustees are not considering carefully enough, and maybe they're being persuaded that you know, the unclaimed benefit fund are experts and so on, but I'm not seeing enough action around that. And we have a lot of complaints about these funds um, uh, just sitting there and, and racking up fees. So there are uh, nice initiatives, particularly in the mining industry, driven by not-for-profit um, funds, retirement funds themselves, and looking particularly, because I think 60% of their unclaimed benefits are for foreigners, which makes it particularly difficult. Um, but there are interesting and, and, and good initiatives happening in that industry, but I think we need to look more carefully, and each board of trustees needs to look carefully at why they're deciding to transfer the assets, uh, their provisions for unclaimed benefits to, to unclaimed benefit funds. The second question is, which unclaimed benefits are they transferring? Um, if a benefit has accrued to a member, say, in uh, 2000, and at that stage the rules said nothing about transferring that liability to an unclaimed benefit fund, then a member is still entitled to come and claim that benefit from the original fund because he or she wouldn't have consented to the transfer to the third party. And in law, you can't just go and say, uh, Pierre, <coughs> you'll know this, uh, I owe you money, but don't collect it from me. Go and collect it from Arthur over there. I'm not allowed to do that. Now, if the rules at the time that the benefit accrued said, if you don't claim your benefit in two years, it'll go to an unclaimed benefit fund, that's different. That's part of the package deal that applied to you at the time the benefit accrued. But you can't go and amend rules retrospectively 
and say, it's okay, we'll transfer that money to an unclaimed benefit fund. Except, of course, on liquidation. That's a very special circumstance. So I'm worried that because a lot of these transfers have been treated as exempt, members' monies have been transferred to unclaimed benefit funds. They don't know where to look. And um, there are all sorts of changes in the industry and so on. And we're not monitoring it through the Section 14 approval process. So we're thinking about withdrawing that, that exemption, uh, certainly for funds where, that want to transfer liabilities where at the time that the benefit accrued, the rules did not provide that there would be an automatic payment to an unclaimed benefit fund. I was made aware the other day of a fund that was brand new. It's only 10 years old, and from the outset, its rules have said, if you don't claim your money within, 10 years, or within, within two years after you leave, it will go to an unclaimed benefit fund. That's fine. Then that would be a kind of benefit payment because that was part of the terms of the deal. And so the benefit, instead of being paid to you, it will be paid to an unclaimed benefit fund, and you will go and have to collect it from there. But if your rights and obligations at the time the benefit accrued did not have that, then we need to be persuaded that you're entitled to do it, uh, that the rules of the receiving fund isn't, uh, allow it to accept that liability. We've, um, Andy in our office went back and looked at some of our transfers of unclaimed benefits in the last, uh, I don't know how many years it was, 10 years or so. There were quite a number of transfers of unclaimed benefits to umbrella funds, along with uh, the members being moved across. They moved the whole lot of the assets and liabilities. But the umbrella funds didn't have rules that allowed them to accept liability for that, uh, those unclaimed benefits. So they got the money, but not the liability. So we're going to be approaching all those funds saying, please amend your rules with retrospective effect so that you can have that liability to match the assets you received. Otherwise, you have to pay it back or do something else with it. So that's why I say these things are rather more complicated and it's, uh, there are all sorts of uh, twists and turns that we hadn't always anticipated. But if you are aware that you are advising a, a, a fund that has received liabilities for uh, assets and respective liabilities for unclaimed benefits, but the rules don't allow you to, to uh, the fund to to accept that liability, please uh, move as fast as possible to change that uh, and bring the rule amendment to us. We're bu sorry, we're busy uh, revising Directive 6. I think it is Directive 6 that uh, we're revising just about everything at the moment um, to deal with all the transfers, and this is where we will address some of these issues. So if you've got thoughts, if you think I'm wrong, and I have been wrong in many cases, so please feel free. I'm not, uh, it doesn't worry me. If you think I'm wrong, please send in your arguments why. Um, and your thinking about what we should do about this and that and why you think we shouldn't put these, these uh, deal with these, uh, as I've suggested, in various regulatory instruments. Completely open to discussion and debate, and there are insights that you have that I certainly don't have and some of my colleagues don't have, so we need as much as uh, we can get from you. Just anything? I think that's, that was on my menu. Um, so thank you very much. I'm happy to, to answer questions within within my, my various restrictions. Um, do you have any questions you'd like to ask me? The unclaimed benefits transfers that you might not be happy with, I mean, how practically are you going to, are you envisioning dealing with that? Go, going to the umbrella funds, the, the transferee funds, saying amend your rules to make sure that... Uh, no, but I'm saying, um, what I'm talking about is more, is more your, the issue of funds that went to unclaimed benefits funds. So the unclaimed benefits fund rules, but it's the whole vesting within the, the original rules that never allowed the transfer to the un, into the unclaimed benefits fund. Well, that, that's part of the complicated things that are making it difficult for us to put out the circular. But you know, the, the principle that senior counsel, this is Andrew Breitenbach, uh, said, is that if nobody has been prejudiced, we can let sleeping dogs lie. The thing is working out where are the indicators of possible substantial prejudice. So we don't want to go and reopen all transfers if it's not going to achieve anything. 
Um, but we do need to look at those and make sure we've got the information that says that there was an, a sufficient was transferred and that um, there is a full accounting for the, for the members, uh, the, the unclaimed benefits in the new fund and the unclaimed benefit funds, and that the unclaimed benefit fund is doing its job to try and find them. If it there was a kind of a, a rough and ready job and it was treated as, as exempt from, from transfer and looks like there's a big mismatch in our data, then we're going to come and ask questions. So we're trying to produce this rather complicated spreadsheet, really. Uh, we had some very complicated mind mapping doing exercises where we're saying, oh, if this, then that's what we need to do, but there may be that angle and so on. So that, that is what is so um, taking us such a long time because there are these variations and we don't want to cause more disruption, disruption if it's not going to result in any value. Um, but it's, it is, we can't just pretend that everything's okay because we have some, found some cases that were very dodgy and it might be um, simply that we didn't have the data. So they might not be dodgy at all or it looks like we made mistakes and we need to fix them. But it's not, you know, so I'm not saying it's corruption or anything like that, maybe negligence or maybe we just don't have the information. But we're plowing through this to, to try and figure that out. I mean, the question is really, for my freestanding fund, do I need to go and check the rules that permitted the transfer, which might have happened, you know, do I need to allow for a liability that could come back? We'd hope that we'd be able to come to you saying we've got concerns, and if you didn't, you wouldn't have to worry. But I think it would be appropriate for you, if you're advising a fund, to go and look at your own transfers. And if you are convinced that everybody's rights were protected, because that's what this is about, then you just uh, let sleeping dogs lie. Of course, make sure that your rules now provide for that so that as benefits accrue and become unclaimed in the future, that won't be a problem. Um, so it would help if, if uh, you all went back and checked that, that uh, past transfers, that everything, you know, if we do come to you with questions, you'll be ready with your data to say, actually, your missing information is easily resolved by this information that we have here. But we didn't want to bug administrators and so on with asking for vast amounts of information that are on our records already. So we're going through our records so that we ask for limited amounts that are, that are missing from our records. And it's particularly these transfers where uh, they were treated as exempt from Section 14 that we might not have all the information. Christian, is there, I saw you there. Have you got anything else you think we should add to this? There's a gentleman at the back. Oh, Mickey. Hi. Hi, Rose. Um, on the... Um, question of uh, surplus um, amounts to former members that can't be found. Um, the regulation can still be observed. You can set up um, the asset, but the actuary's job is with the liability. So the fund can say, yes, we do still owe 10 million to all those former members, but as an actuary, I think the chance of anybody claiming is 1%. So we're putting 1,000 rand down. What's, what's wrong with that? It's the way you read the regulation. I haven't got it with me, but it talks about not being allowed to release it unless you uh, release the provision unless you pay the member. So it does sound to me on the way and, and to council, the way we've read the regulation, that you're supposed to hold the money for a, forever in a day. The provision you originally set aside, which would no doubt be a provision in an amount that would uh, uh, asset value equal to the li your liability at the time. So actuarially, it might be right to say that over time, as prospects of success for every finding these people may reduce, um, particularly taking into account all the efforts you've made so far, I don't think the regulation as it is now worded allows you to re release the money, any money, from the reserve that you set aside for the surplus payments, uh, the unclaimed surplus only. The other amounts is a separate question, and we want to put out guidance on that, but we wanted to put it all together because uh, people do get confused. They treat it all as one, and so we thought it would be better to have a, a single uh, circular on that. 
Hi, Rosemary. Uh, you talked about um, transfers to unclaimed benefits funds. Um, I just wanted to find out what the FSB's position regarding um, recognition of transfers, because um, you say that um, if the benefits of members, there was no prejudice to the members, then the FSB would not be too concerned. But if there was prejudice, then um, there could be some concern. Now, the question is, without you having been involved in the transfers and actually, how do we know whether there was prejudice or not, where there has been a recognition of transfer? Well, there, there, if you're an actuary advising a fund, then you advise the fund to produce the information to help you figure out whether there was prejudice. It's kind of the question we, we would be asking if we don't have that information. In some cases, even if it, uh, a transfer didn't go through the Section 14 process, we got uh, forms that said this is where the money is, or we, checked, we got information from the transferee fund that said that the assets and liabilities are fully accounted for. So it's really where there's gaps in that information that we will be coming and asking questions, and you can do that in the meantime. And uh, it's really to make sure that the money is there and steps are being taken to find the people it belongs to, if it hasn't been done already. So, um, and it's really just in the process. Now, we're talking about past transfers, um, and we can argue that you know, many of these past transfers should have been under, even, uh, even before the Directive 6 exemption, should have been gone through the Section 14 approval process, but were treated as a recognition of transfer, which is really a SARS term. Um, so it was treated as a benefit payment when it really was a transfer of liabilities. But uh, we can debate that forever and a day. Our real concern is, was anybody prejudiced by whether the method was legal or not? If there was, if the process, uh, sorry, particularly if the process was not authorized by law, our concern is whether there was prejudice. And if, it was, if there was prejudice, then there are various things we need to consider about what to do about it. Um, but I'm hoping that in most cases, in 99 point, if not 100% of the cases, we will find that people's member, uh, rights have been protected and that all that is required is further effort to try and find them. Um, but we can't just pretend everything's okay. That's not our job as regulator. Anything else? Great. Enjoy the rest of your conference.